Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeblassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have my friend, Bambi Brown. Bambi never imagined herself as an alcoholic or drug addict. It wasn't until she was deep into an abusive relationship that she realized that she could not stop. Although she was introduced to sobriety at age 18, it took eight years of relapse to finally become sober at 26 years old. She is a nurse and a mother of two, but it wasn't until the birth of her first child she experienced a true emotional bottom in sobriety. Her journey in motherhood changed not only her life, but her views on sobriety as well. She is in a devoted relationship with her also sober high school sweetheart and lives in Hawaii. Friends, family, listeners, this one's awesome. Please take a listen and enjoy my friend, Bambi Brown. Episode 41, let's do this. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is so fun. Okay. So you are currently in Hawaii. Yes. And it's a beautiful day. I'm sorry to say. Oh, the jealousy is so strong. It's really something else. Yeah. And uh, did you grow up in Hawaii? Yep. Born and raised. And, um, you know, my family's from here. My mom's from Pittsburgh. My dad's from uh, born and raised here as well. So my mom's a transplant. And uh, so did you grow up like, go? are, are you from the city or, or where, where in Hawaii? I am from a very tiny town. When I was growing up, there wasn't even a stoplight. So oh, wow. that people rode horses around to get around. And, well, you're not that old. So that's pretty intense. Yeah. 82. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, like they rode horses mm-hmm. to get around. Yeah, so it's a cowboy town, and um, you know, a lot of ranches and a lot of cattle, and a lot of just horses and cows and dogs, goats, that kind of God, stuff. I don't picture like cattle is not what comes to mind when I think of Hawaii. No, you think beaches like yeah. Blue Lagoon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think like cattle and horses and goats. Yeah. Uh, so then, okay. So mom <laughs> is from Pittsburgh. You grew mm-hmm. up, you grew up there. What, what was it like growing up in rural Hawaii? I mean, when it's all, you know, it's all, you know, right. But, um, yeah. as I kind of got older, you know, I'm, I'm a part Hawaiian, but I look like my mom. I, I look German and my dad is part Hawaiian and here, um, when you don't look what you are, it's kind of, you know, in the early eighties, it was, um, sometimes a struggle if people didn't know who you were because in Hawaii, white people are a little bit, you know, because of the history, it's, yeah. it's a tough place to kind of grow up, especially when you're in a tiny town with not a lot of outside influence and it's what you know. Right. So that was a struggle. I automatically felt like I was an outsider when I shouldn't have felt like that. Right. Because I didn't match what I was on the outside. Like like you didn't look Hawaiian. No. I mean, look at me. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, no, you definitely don't look Hawaiian. The blonde blonde hair makes it, makes it a real struggle there. Right. Uh, Right. You actually look like 
like a Hawaiian vacation ad. Yeah. Like, Hi. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that works. Come. So did you grow up like milking cows or how, like what was, did you have a ranch? Well, we, we lived way outside of town. So I grew up about 20 minutes out of the tiny town that had like the grocery store and stuff. So we had animals, dogs, all that kind of stuff. You know, it was my parents worked really hard. Um, my dad owned and worked at a gas station. My mom did the books. I helped my mom do all of her work. You know, it's just kind of like middle class living. And were you a happy kid? Like, did you? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my mom said I came out with a grimace and I don't think it ever really left. You know, I was, I have always been from the get go skeptical, untrustworthy of others. You know, I just, I have to assess to the, to, to a fault. I have to like assess the situation. And that's what I was doing out the gate. You're a Taurus. So that, oh, that- yeah that like everything about that fits really well. Uh, yeah. I, can, I can say that because my sister's a Taurus and right. uh, I, <laughs> I see the similarity, just that like untrustworthy of the world. Yeah. Just like, mm, I'm going to rethink this one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you're living rurally. You're not Hawaiian, but you, did you go to the public school, the local public school? No. So our public school system is rough. I was fortunate enough to have a grandmother that paid for me to go to a private school. Okay. Uh, both, both my sister and I attended a pu- uh, private school, which thank God saved me from a lot of other yeah, stuff. Um, stuff right? Yeah. So despite that, I still had a hard time. Uh, I was still an outsider. I still got, you know, that girl bullying stuff. That's really just, Oh yes. Oh ooh. yeah. By, by, you know, third grade, I was experiencing that big time by seventh grade. It was, it was unbearable. Yeah. And yeah. when you, what did you do to cope, cope with that as a young kid? Oh, I just, I, I learned to rely on myself. No one was going to save me from that. You know, nobody cares when you're a kid and you say, oh, you know, my mom did the best she could, but she was busy. You know, she was working as she was working into the night every night you know? Yeah. So, um, what do you do? You just yeah. put your head down. So you just, you grit your teeth and bear it or did you fight? Cause this was, Sometimes, was a lot of bullying, a lot of bullying, a lot of like, I mean, and you know, we're in a tiny town, so there's no getting away from it. It's right. like, they're on your soccer team. They're in your, they're right. everywhere there. You don't right. get away from them. Right. And, yeah. um, so it was like, I am gonna go inward and I am going to just bite down and, and get through it. Right. But right. that turns into other things, as we know. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what uh, well, what did that turn into for you? So by the time, you know, seventh grade was really horrible. Uh, seventh the, grade is just awful. Yeah. I think it's like period 12, like yeah. the whole thing. And like, if you're at a anything out of like oh, a yeah. box, you're done. Oh, forget. And no one comes. I mean, even it was interesting because I've talked to people I went to middle school with who were like the popular, like the right size, the right shape, the right color, yeah. um, you know, said the right thing sounded and they still felt, they still came, like, didn't feel, you know, there was things they were going on. And I thought, you know, no one comes out of middle school, uh, unscathed like that. Yeah. It's just, 
it is just traumatic. Yeah. So by the time I was a freshman, I was toast. I was like, this sucks. I hate school. I hate all of this. I don't know what I need to do, but I need, I need out of here. Right. right. Like there's nowhere to go. I'm on an Island. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> like, Everyone, literally. like literally there's no, you can't like yeah. run away. I mean, you right. could, but like, where are you going to go? Right. You know? So, you know, by freshman year, I am pretty much totally shut down and I'm like into the sad songs and I'm like, you yeah, know, yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm dressing the part. I'm doing my schoolwork, but like inside I am dying. Yeah. And by sophomore, I think that's sophomore year. I ended up, I think it traumatized me to the point where I, I made myself sick. I got mono. Oh yeah. And I, and I missed school for about three, two or three months. Mm-hmm. I literally was in bed for two or three months of my sophomore year. I had and when it. I, when I came out of that, I was like, okay, I really hate this and I don't know what to do. And so I kind of transitioned into the it's okay to drink. It's, you know, I knew it was bad. I had family members with serious alcohol problems, but I was like, you know, that is something. And the first time I actually was like, you know, I had taken sips as a kid, like little kid, right? Like six. By yourself or like, no, no, no. By, by myself, I had taken sips up. My mom used to make rum cake and I would go and sneak the rum and, uh, but the first time I really, really drank, I drank a bottle of Chardonnay that was at somebody's, uh, mm. yeah, it really gross. Um, <laughs> it was a sleepover. I drank the whole bottle. How old Just were you? 15. Okay. Drink, drink the whole bottle in one thing. Yeah. Why? I don't don't know why. Oh, I do. But that, that's what happened. I just, I went, <laughs> I'm doing this and I did it. Yeah. And then I vomited profusely. Right. Because you also, we should say this, you are a very small human being. Um, yeah. The bottle was probably heavier than me at that point. Yeah. 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 Like you're very small, you're petite, small yeah. human being. So a bottle of wine for you and a bottle of wine for me, very different. So it was profuse red vine vomiting all over this <laughs> poor girl's like white carpet. And oh. you know, all the, all the girls are like, Oh, what do we do? But we're drunk too. You know, like it's just, <laughs> And, and from then, I didn't it's always think... a white carpet. Like oh the one friend who has a one family who's like, yeah, we're gonna have a white carpet because that's a good idea. And, and a bar in your house, right, right. Also a good idea, right? Yeah. So I, I actually like the bar idea better than the white carpet. But it's right. always the white fr- the friend with the white carpet who you basically lose, you know, an entire bottle of some colored alcohol to. Yeah, and I remember the next day the girls being like, "Whoa, that was really rough." And are you okay? And and I was like, what's the problem? You know, like, why are we still talking about this? Like next, like, I didn't think it was so serious. You know what I mean? I was sick. It was a problem, (laughs) but not a problem. They were normal ish, you know? Right. I I was not. Right. Right. And, and you probably were like, oh, this is the thing I've been looking for. Right. Not that. Not not yet. Not yet. No, it wasn't until I was 18 when that clicked heavy. 
Okay. Okay. So this was just like early, early. Okay. And then in your high school years, you actually, I'm going to call him your husband, your life partner, your husband. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you met your husband. Uh, I met him at 13. At, okay. At 13. Did, so mm-hmm. he went to the same school? Yes. And he had a, a couple brief um, exits and returns. He's <laughs> one of us. Um, but yes, we met at 13. And did he grow up rurally? So he grew up on the mainland and then his family came here to Maui, to this island. Um, but when he lived, both places pretty rural. I mean, rural New Mexico and right, right, right. rural. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we okay. kind of come from similar. Similar. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. His family, um, they, they, had, they moved around a lot. They had a lot. Yes. A lot of resources. Yeah. Yeah, they were uh, able to pick and choose where they wanted to live with, I wouldn't say ease, but I would say, you know, if you wanted to yeah. go somewhere, you could. Right. So how did your drinking escalate? And what was, you met at 13, like walk us through kind of the the parallel of meeting your husband and also like how the drinking escalated. So he had been primed way earlier than I had. I mean, I was, I was introduced like in Hawaii, everyone smokes pot. Like that's, it's not, you know, that's just what happens. People grow it. People, it, despite if it's legal or not in the early nineties, like it didn't matter. It's that's just the culture. Right. So that was kind of like already around. Right. It didn't always thing. I mean, it was naughty. It It was was naughty. Okay. It was naughty, but it wasn't like, Oh, you know, this is really bad. But my husband had, had been primed quite a lot earlier than I had. So he was already accelerating at his, his disease much quicker than I was. So when we got together, I was like, when we really got together in high school, I was like, holy moly, this guy is on fire. You know, like I kind of had to keep up and I was like anxious about it. And like, you know, there would be parties and and I would feel uncomfortable because it was like, you know, way out of, way out of my, I don't know, comfort zone of what I thought a party should be. You know, he was, um, (laughs) he and his brother were really experts at this point. I was just trying to keep along, you know, like, okay, I, I was still anxious about losing control. You know, I never wanted to lose control. I never wanted to be, you know, not within a good sense of my brain. Like, uh, this is what's happening. And slowly and slowly I started to care less. Yeah. And, and full disclosure, I went to rehab with your husband when we were teenagers. I don't, I think he's, he's a bit older than I am. Yeah. He was, I think 21. Right. And I was 17. Right. Right. So we went to, we went to treatment together. So I definitely, um, on fire. (laughs) Yeah. He, he's, uh, definitely an advanced case. Yeah. He, he's like, you know, a Roman candle, like you light him up and he's, He's in the next state and, 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 and that's just his story. I'm, I have such a different story. You know, we're so, we are so different. (laughs) Well, it's amazing. He, you know, it's an, and it's a really, it speaks to, um, Dak and I are very different that way too. It speaks to the different, how addiction and alcoholism present themselves. right? Right. And you were about control and, you know, and, and, trying to keep things together. And, you know, I know your husband and, <laughs> and uh, he's like, 
you know, he, and he, it's funny because he's like this in sobriety. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I remember, you know, when we were in our early 20 or I was in my early twenties and we were sober in um, Los Angeles. And, you know, I would say like, I have this crazy idea. Let's go to Vegas for the weekend and blah, blah, blah. And the next thing I know, like he's at my house, he, yeah. the car's ready to go. Like, yeah. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't have a, I don't have a hotel. Like I don't have a plan put together. No. I, Plans like, I, don't matter. Oh my God. And he's <laughs> just ready to go. Like, and I remember being like, I'm not ready. I'm so uncomfortable. You know, like, he's like, all right, Loeb, I'm coming over. We're going, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. So I, I could see as a teenager, just being like, this guy is, you know, he's like, the guy, he's the guy that jumps off the 80 foot cliff. He's the guy. Uh-huh. uh-huh. He, and, and it's not even like, there's no thought. No, thought. there's there, it's just, we're going, going and, and I'm going like, I'm the one you know, dying Pumping inside. the brakes. Yeah. Having a panic attack. Yes, yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. I had that too when we were, when we were just sober. I'm like, oh my God, this is all moving so fast. I don't even know what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up actually splitting up. I, I went through this time where I couldn't, I kind of became mentally ill within, in high school, you know, so I had severe depression, severe anxiety people. I was put on medication, but I was using within the medication. Right. So like my mom would take me to the psychiatrist, I would take the pills and then, you know, she would let me go. And I was out mixing, you know, without that's, that's what happened. And I became, I needed an answer for, for my behavior. I didn't know how to explain how I was feeling because I was so out of sorts. And so my senior year was a disaster. I was smoking a lot of marijuana. And I think that really did something to my brain with what was going on emotionally. Like I know people say it's not a big deal and it's just marijuana and all this stuff. But what I was ingesting, I don't think was good for my brain along with the alcohol, along with whatever else I was doing. It really did something catastrophic in there. And I don't think I got through that until, you know, I got sober, sober, but that was the beginning of some real issues for me. So I started lying about all kinds of stuff. And eventually that those lies like made me and my now husband break up and it was big. And I had to work through that later, but anyway. And you're, you know, I think a lot of people have like struggle with depression and anxiety. You know, I think a lot of people who are quote unquote normies or people without addiction struggle with Mm -hmm. depression and anxiety. I also believe that your depression and anxiety from what I, you know, understand looked much more severe than like, it it wasn't like, I just want to highlight that like, it wasn't like, I'm feeling sad and like oh, life no, is no. bad or, or anxious. Like your like from your level of anxiety is completely crippling. Like you can't leave the house. I cannot, I don't know how I managed to finish that year of high school. I felt like I was constantly on like, uh, uh, like pins. Like my body was on fire. Like I, I can't explain it. And when I used it, it, would go away a little bit, and then it would get worse. It was like two steps back. It was just it was it it would relieve it for a second, and then it would be like even worse when I got like a little bit clear minded. And so you know, I went off. I ended up getting a scholarship, and I got to um, 
art school in San Francisco. And that's when things went the boom. <laughs> <laughs> what happened at art school? So I'm, I'm from a tiny, I'm like I said, I'm from a tiny town. I go off to school on my own. I'm not living like in a dorm or anything. I'm living with family friends out in Marin and I have no, I'm, I'm the anxiety is so much um, that I am fearful. Like I turn my head, I'm fearful. I I'm constantly just severe anxiety. So I started to take whatever, you know, these kids that were in my class were doing, which was a lot, you know, and it helped, you know, you take the Vicodin and you're dying your hair and you pass out and then half your hair is gone. It's like, whatever. Yeah. You know, you wake up and you're half your hair's gone. It's cool. <laughs> No big deal. Like that's where it got to because it was just, I needed relief from what, what was going on chemically, I guess, inside of me. Yeah. And luckily you were at art school. So having half your hair, you could just blame oh, it, it was on. legit, dude. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, <laughs> I'm, I'm at art school. This is what I do. Yeah. It was just, you know, I, I, I couldn't cope and I had all these other emotional things going on. So my mom came to visit me, took one look at me and was like, uh, we're going home. Yeah, five months in. Where you need five to leave. Five months in. Okay. Five, okay. five months in. Yeah. So had you told her or talked to, like it was I'm kind of like an open book. You yeah. know, she, I was like, look at me, look what I'm doing. I'm a mess. Like take yeah. a big take I, I have eyeliner all over my eyes. Like <laughs> like she you just look like a, a psych ward uh official. I looked like you know that movie The Craft? Uh-huh. Yeah. I was one of the witches, you know, like, right, right, right. right. <laughs> not as hot, not as hot. I was kind of like light, the... light as a feather, stiff as a board. Yeah. Dead inside. Dead inside. <laughs> yeah. So, um, she comes, she takes you home. And she, I think if I, you know, it's hard to look back and say, am I thinking about this correctly? I think she did offer like some kind of help. Like maybe we should do something about this which had been discussed before, but you know, my parents don't know anything about this kind of world, you know, right. they both had alcoholic parents, but it wasn't like nothing, you didn't do anything about it. Right. You know, and they had gone through stuff with my sister and Is she older or younger, older. Okay. So they had kind of been through this rodeo and hopefully I'd grow out of it kind of thing. But, um, so we get back to Hawaii and, Within a couple of days, I'm 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 out with a girlfriend, and I meet this guy. Of course, right? Of course. I mean. <laughs> and I'm 18, and he tells me he's 24, and I'm like, sick. He's hot. Like I am. This is yeah. This, this is, is what I'm looking for. You know, like, <laughs> and I literally move in within I don't know a week. <laughs> not I'm sure. not kidding. Naturally, I'm 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 home home Mm -hmm. in a week. And I find out he's actually 31 and I'm like, whatever. And you're divorced. Cool. Whatever. Cool. Like I'm that girl now I can do it. I'm in and off to the races. What did it look like living with, uh, with him? A mess. So that's when he was a full blown alcoholic. I mean, he could function. He was, uh, he could go to work usually, but that's when I found alcohol to be my best friend. Alcohol was all of a sudden, it was so easy. I mean, the relief was instant. And so I didn't, I didn't really stop. 
Right. Because you talked about how when you did stop, it came back worse. Yes. And this was, this was my answer. It didn't, I mean, I prefer beer. I mean, I was like a beer drinker. Like I was like, I, yes, you don't beer. No, but it showed in a couple of years. Let me tell you. (laughs) Um, So it was like, you know, hard alcohol and, and, and beer. I, I just, I loved being able to just get it in me, feel it. It was like, Oh my God, this is, why didn't I do this more? This works, right? This works. But what happened when I would get to that point where we get, you know, I was, I'm a fighter apparently. I'm a runner. I'm a fighter. I'm a screamer. I'm a yeller. I'm a thrower. I'm a, I'm a out of controller. Big time. <laughs> you're a, t- a tiny bomb is what yes. you are. <laughs> yes. And, oh, so annoying. Yeah. <laughs> the bombs went off. Oh yeah. I believe yeah. that. I believe that. So then you, so you start drinking. So you're drinking every day and then it gets yes. to that point, right? Where it's not working. So what happens is I am drinking, 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 partying, partying, partying. There's all kinds of substances in there. This is party time. This is free for all. This is older crowd. This is motorcycles and bad guys. And this is everything I've always like thought. <laughs> yeah. This is like sons of anarchy. This is great. You know, I'm, a, yeah. I'm 18. Yeah. And this is amazing. This is big time. This is, this is cool. Um, It's actually tragic, you know, because we're living in a house behind his parents. Like this isn't cool. This isn't cool. But, but that the thing is, and the thing that, you know, I want to say is like, I've been where I've been there. I've been with the the boyfriend that's older where it's chaotic. It's a mess. And it feels so cool. And it feels like you're just, you're in this like, like Romeo and Juliet movie where it's like, we're going to, we're going to die together. And it's, it's like tragically romantic. And I mean, that feeling is so intoxicating in and of itself. I was addicted to that too. Yes, I was addicted to what was happening there. I, you know, looking back and now that I'm like an adult and, you know, all this stuff, like when I turned his age, when we first met, when I turned 31 and I looked at what was going on, you know, in comparison, I was like, holy moly, how like, I can't imagine doing that at 31. Yep. So I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And you look at, um, for me, the guy that I was with, he was like same age difference, but we started mm-hmm. dating when I was 15. He was in his late twenties. And, uh, and I looked at, I had braces and oh. I looked, I had clear braces that turned yellow. And I remember like him talking about like liking my braces and <gasps> yeah. And, uh, thinking like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> and, um, oh. I had done them for a short period of time and it, it was heinous. And then, but I remember looking back at 15 year olds and thinking like even the most mature 15 year olds, which, you know, whatever, but like, it just, I mean, like this is wrong. <laughs> right. Right. Like, dude, you, that's brutal. Like that it is, is brutal. It just shows you like the disease state of the other person. Right. Absolutely. But also the disease state, the disease state of the other person. And then like my disease state perfectly fit into that because I felt like, 
I felt like in my addiction with that, and, and this is a common thing. So like, I think it's good to touch on common thing that young girl meets older guy in, you know, to take care of them in this, in their, like deep in their addiction. And then they get addicted to him and that relationship. And I think also what was so comforting about that, despite it being just awful was I felt like I was in, in order to use a lot of drugs and drink a lot of alcohol, you find yourself in really gnarly situations. And I felt like if I would like, I had a protector in that, right? Like I was like, you had to hire, you had to, like, you almost had to like hire a bodyguard in order to be an alcohol, a fe- young female alcoholic. You have to be in a relationship in order to survive that world. So what we had a very, obviously had a very volatile relationship. Uh, there was yelling, screaming, hitting, throwing surfboards through windows, you know, holes in walls, that kind of thing. But we, we would separate and get back together. So it was like, I'd leave and then he'd come get me. And when I was out there on my own, it would be so hard, you know, and then he would come in with the motorcycle and save me and we'd get back together. That's exactly what you're talking about. That was what was happening for six years. Right. Right. Yeah. For six years. Right. So that's it. And it, and it's so complicated. It, 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 at least it feels so complicated to get out. Like it's so the comp, like getting out of those situations, like you're not just grappling with the relationship, how they're treating you. Like you're grappling with the addiction to the way the relationship makes you feel. And you're grappling with like your literal addiction to chemical substances. Yes. You know, substances. So I needed him not only for like safety, shelter, food, drugs, alcohol, love, like he was everything. He was the like Supreme burrito. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. No, I mean, it, that's, and you find yourself in this situation, like, well, I can't leave. What do I do now? No. So it wasn't, my dad got sick in my early twenties and it kind of like woke me up briefly where I had to kind of like get places and like show up because it was serious. And in that, in that time, I spent some time in the hospital and stuff like that. And I, I realized I had no goals. Okay. I didn't have like a job. I didn't have like a plate. There was no plan for the future and kind of like, almost like a lightning bolt through my head. I decided that I was going to be a nurse. It was just kind of like, this is what I'm going to do when I went through the experience with my dad. And, um, I just started, it was weird because I had no, I was like a loser. You know, I was like the girl at the beach that like laid out all day and like went home and like, I didn't do anything. You know what I mean? So I decided to start classes and I just started at the community college and, and I was still partying, but it, not until I got into nursing school did I have to slow down because you really couldn't do what I was doing. And when I finally got into nursing school, I did slow down and I only would drink on the weekends, but it was so hard to do that, that by when I finished, when I graduated and I did graduate second in my class, I kind of exploded because I had held it together for so long. I I had to get through this because this was my way out of him. And I knew that without a skill, I was dead in the water, you know, and I still had, although I had this crippling depression, I still kind of at times wanted to live. And this was my little hope out. Right. Right. 
Yeah. So, so what did it look like when you exploded out of nursing school? So we, when I, I passed my state exam and the next weekend I broke up with him. I, I just, yeah, I was so toasted on, I was terrified. I couldn't continue this anymore. The relationship was just catastrophic. And I took off my engagement ring. I gave it to his mother, I think. And, um, I left. How old were you when you did that? Uh, 25. Okay. 25. Okay. So I got sober at 26. So it was a hard, it was a big year. Okay. (laughs) So in between in, in this relationship, when we would like break up and stuff, I would run to AA because I had been introduced to AA at 18. Okay. Who introduced you to AA? So I had been introduced to AA at 18 when, um, my husband got into a car accident and, there were some injuries and his mother said you had to go to AA and I went with him and I was like, Oh, well, that's really isn't for me, but like, I can't hear what they're saying and you're 18. So whatever. Yeah. So when we would break up and have these huge things, I would run to NA or AA and kind of like word vomit at everybody and And run away. away. You know, I was the girl in the parking lot. They were, they were like kind of, trying to like help. And yeah. I was like, no, 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 no. I just right. came to like vomit on you, you know? Right, 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 right. So you're 25, you graduate, you explode and you're, so you did go to AA or what happens when you? So I reconnected with my husband randomly and I knew that he had been sober this whole long, this whole time. And I was like, I, I couldn't really tell him what was going on because I was just too embarrassed, you know, but he kind of like another seed was planted and I wanted help. I wanted help like desperately. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I had been involved in another abusive relationship uh, right out the gate of this last one. I was accelerating out of control, trying to keep a job, trying to, manage the feelings that were just, it was just bubbling over. And, um, I was in trouble. Like I didn't want to be in my body at all. Couldn't handle it. Every moment was excruciating. Every moment was like lying. Every moment was like just visceral pain, pain. Being sentenced to another day of life. Yeah. I I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. So you, you run into your now husband, um, you reconnect on the internet. Uh, you run into him on the inner, inner web. I'm, I'm, I'm in Hawaii and he's in California. Okay. And, uh, and he'd been sober, what, like four, five, six years, four or five years, maybe. And I was like, Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what happened? What happened once? You- so I decided, I just said, you know, I think I'm going to go to, I think I'm going to go to a meeting. And he was like, be careful, you know, like young girl goes to AA story, you know? And I, I just, I just was ready at that point. I was just ready at 26. I, I actually had been at a new year's Eve party and I got, you know, annihilated. And this girl that was at the party with me was sober and I knew her. I grew up with her and she told me she had like nine years. And I was like, all of a sudden it was like attractive, right? All of a sudden it was like, Oh, maybe I could have a life that didn't look like this. Cause she looked 
well. Right. Right. <laughs> she looked, she looked well. She looked like she, she had things that she liked. That's all I really wanted. I just wanted like to be okay with the day. You yeah. know, I just wanted to be okay with the day. And I, I never, I hadn't been since I think I was like nine. And so you go to a meeting in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I go to a, like a young people's meeting that, and I raise my hand and for the first time in my whole life, I found friends like real, like, I, I mean, these are these people that surrounded me literally lifted me up off the ground because I couldn't do it anymore. It, I couldn't function. Yeah. I was so dead and broken. And yeah. they just picked me up. That's, um, it's a beautiful thing, you know, especially like after we're talking about, you know, joking about middle school and, and how like, so what the environment, like, it's like the opposite, like you walk in and a group of people and you're sure they're going to judge you and you're sure mm-hmm. like, you're terrified of everyone in the room. And mm-hmm. you say, you raise your hand and you're like, I'm, I need help. And every young girl, every older woman, every, every person in the room turns and wants to help you. And it's the craziest thing I've ever experienced. All the cool kids that normally would be mean to you. Yes. They run to help you. Well, they were saying everything that I had been keeping inside my body for so long and they were saying it like freely. And I was like, Oh my God, I am not the only one here. Like for so long, I was just, even within my family, I felt like I just, there was something wrong. Right. You know, there was something wrong with me. And I, I just, people were like laughing about these horrible stories. And I was like, wait a second, I've freaking done that. And it's funny now. Oh, I'm full of jokes now. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like I am ready to, I, I have found like my, this, these are my people. Yeah. Yeah. These are my people. Where have they been? Yeah. I, I, and they were out there. I mean, they were all at the parties that I was at. I just didn't know we were on the same team. Right. 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 Cause you weren't. No. Right. Cause you weren't, right. you had, you hadn't gotten to that place of like the, the gift of desperation. Like we talk right. about, like, right. De- like you can't make, you know, we, we talk about like recovery is not for people who need it. It's not for people who want it. It's for people no. who do it. And yeah. the reason being that you, you have to like you, I, I have wanted different types of recovery in my life for long periods of time before I was ever willing to do it. You know, yeah, I was never willing to do it. I was never willing yeah. to stay. Like, just wanting it is not enough. No, the, the power of the, whatever happens in your brain when you put the substance in is just, it's too much. It's too much. Right. And so that gift of desperation, like that bottom out and bottom out does not looks different for different people. Like totally my bottom and my husband's bottom are way different. Yeah. Right. Like, you you know, it bottom out can be an emotional experience feeling. I've bought, I have bottomed out in sobriety many times and that's coming up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So talking about bottoms, right? Like I've bottomed out and like on the outside, things were going fine that you could see and I'm bottoming out on the inside. So like when we talk about bottoms, like that person needs to hit a bottom, that doesn't mean that they need to overdose and be in a coma. Like it means that they have to have that gift of desperation. They have to be so desperate that they're willing to do something that's 
in direct contrast to their addiction and their alcoholism, which is which is like jumping off a cliff, a hundred percent like jumping. I mean, it is with your eyes closed and no, you know, and and having and having fire at the bottom, and them telling yes. you it'll be fine, you know, like yeah, and like, you're like, nope, yeah, yeah, uh, and you you know, every every few months you peek over the cliff, like yeah, no, I'm gonna say no, you know, but then you find you finally take that that leap, and well, it's uh, that or you die. Right. You either die emotionally, you die physically. I mean, you, it's some sort of death. If you're lucky, right. Because in in some ways, like I felt like, you know, people like I was afraid I was going to die. And for me personally, I was not going to, I was not dying, you know, like, I I mean, that was definitely coming, but on the way there, (laughs) it was like not dying. It was like, being, you know, I'm in like, you know, I'm being maimed along the way. Like it's one right. thing to be taken out. It's another thing to be maimed for 10 years. Like I was just yes. over it. I, I was in this, in the washing machine, yeah, you know, that right. never stopped. It never stopped. If it wasn't my brain, it was the party. If it wasn't the party, it was the, it was, there was always a catastrophe. One mm-hmm. big giant. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. So you get sober. When did you move to Los Angeles? So I, I get sober. And when I, you know, they say wait a year. So yeah. I waited a year or maybe just shy of a year. And I moved to, a year to get into a relationship. I mean, we were in a relationship, but I wasn't, you it didn't wasn't like, right I didn't move right away. I knew I had to get a year ish under my belt because that's was, you know, I was following directions at this point. I was willing to listen. I was willing to kind of do the steps to my ability, my best ability, you know, that kind of thing. So I was, I was listening. And so when I was around a year, um, I moved to LA, never been there. (laughs) (laughs) I've been there once. I went to visit once and I was like, eh. And so I moved. It didn't go great. You you moved in with your now husband. Yes. And, you know, I'm newly sober. I'm in a big city. He's working all the time. He's not always around. And I'm kind of like fish out of water. And meetings were so different. Oh my God. Meetings were so different for me that I was like, I don't have a Louis purse. Like, I I don't know what's going on here. Like I, I hadn't been around so much materialism. Right. So I was kind of like, are you kidding? Like, is this real? Do people really care about this stuff? They do. And I felt I once again, like an outsider and I wasn't able to kind of like put that aside and see where like, you know, but for the I, similarity. yeah, I was like, holy shit, this is weirdsville. Right. Right. Cause you're, you're from that small town, you know, that's just not, yeah. so it was automatically a di- disconnect. So I wasn't plugged in. I, I wasn't like plugged in. And so things started to fall apart and we ended up breaking up and I moved home. And, and what, what happened? So, uh, so I spent about a year single and I, I went to maybe sometimes 10 meetings a week. I like knew at two years sober and hitting a bottom within this relationship. I was like, I have to get back on it and I have to like, I'm, dying inside. I got to do something. So I was doing like 10 meetings, seven to 10 meetings a week and I got better. Shocker. (laughs) (laughs) And so of course, what do we do? We get back together. 
And I moved back to LA. And this time I'm like, I am plugged in. I know how to do this. Like I can handle the materialism. I can handle, like I can do this. I'm a big girl. I got my big girl panties on. And so I turned five, we're together. I turned five years sober and I'm pregnant. (laughs) And I gladly, you know, like excited, find out it's a boy that's very exciting for whatever reason. I'm like, yay, a boy. And, um, <laughs> but I'm sick. I am very, 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 very sick. I am throwing mm-hmm. up, uh, you know, I am kidney stones. I am throwing up, um, the whole pregnancy. I don't have any family around me. My husband works very long hours. No one around me is really pregnant. Maybe one other person's pregnant, but that's not like a reliable source. And, um, you know, I'm kind of on my own and in my culture, like pregnant women are not like alone, you know, where I grew up, like your whole family is surrounding you. You're kind of taken care of. And when I'm in LA and I'm pregnant, it's like no man's land. Right. So your husband was, was working in the film industry at the time right? Like 12, 15. Yeah. Yeah. So he was still working in film and he was, you know, 14 hours yeah, yeah, a day, yeah. but I'm pregnant so I can like handle it. But I don't really think what's going to happen when the baby comes and I'm solo. Right. Right. I'm like, I'm kind of fearful, but I'm like, I can handle this. Like it's a baby. I can handle it. Why you, you moved back and you were like, I'm going to get plugged in. What happened? Why weren't you plugged was, in? I, just, you know, I, it was like differences, big differences that I thought I could get over. And I, and I really couldn't, I felt like a lot of mean girl stuff happening in the click that I was kind of plugged into. And, you know, with girls with a lot of sobriety that I felt would have like kind of taken me in and maybe in their minds they did and they tried, but I was like, this is bullshit. You know, there was a lot of, uh, on my part, a lot of just resistance. uh, Yes. I couldn't, I couldn't do what they were doing. Right. I I just didn't fit with what I was about. Right. Right. I I couldn't do it. So your baby is born. Yes. In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. Yes. And your, and your mom is there for a week. My mom is there for a week. Uh, I had, I had a, you know, I wanted to do it naturally. I wasn't able to at like 11 hours into, you know, having contractions every minute. I begged for the epidural that stalled everything. I ended up having the baby, uh, not, well, not naturally, but vaginally, which I was threatened with a C-section, which was scary for me. Um, being a nurse, I was like, you know, everything is, I know what's happening. Right. Right. So, which is a blessing and a curse Mm -hmm. when you're, when you, when you're the patient and you're a nurse, it's like bad news bears. Right. Cause you know, you know, what can happen. My experience in the hospital was terrible. Nurses, terrible. I actually, like had a note on the door to keep them out uh, because I felt like I had to protect myself and I had to protect my baby. And I had to advocate for myself when I was very, very vulnerable, which was very scary. Uh, So my experience in the hospital was terrible. I get home and my mom's with me for a week and then she has to go home. And then my husband has to go back to work 
and I'm alone with this baby. And as soon as the baby came out, I knew something wasn't right with me. Like I felt pure, I don't know, panic. And it wasn't like, I can't take care of the baby. Like the, the things with like changing diapers and stuff, that's nothing. It wasn't that it was like this overwhelming responsibility that I had never felt my whole life. And it shook me. It was huge. It was huge. I couldn't get my head around it. I was able to do all the things that you're supposed to do. I was like, you know, baby is very well taken care of. I was breastfeeding. Like I wouldn't say that I was emotionally like, Oh my God, I love this thing totally. But I was like, this is my baby. I love him. You know, like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was like that. Um, but the fear was huge. Right. Because it wasn't, it just, there, it was huge. I can't, I can't explain it other than just an overwhelming fear. Well, and it was, it was crippling. It was crippling. I was frozen. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. So you find yourself in, you know, um, at the time you're living in in a nice apartment, but apartment nonetheless. Beautiful. I'm living like, if you look at my life, it is looking good. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, but you're alone most of the time with the baby and yeah, I don't have a support group. I have a sponsor, but I don't have a support group of like women with babies. I don't have like, I, I don't have that. Right. And so ultimately you experienced extreme postpartum, but what was Mm -hmm. interesting, you know, at the time I was no longer in Los Angeles, but you know, I, we were in touch and what was interesting that I didn't know. Um, and I remember thinking like, what, what is this? Like what's, you know, not understanding was that you had something called postpartum anxiety. Yeah. And I had never heard of that. Me neither. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I'd never, I mean, I'd heard of postpartum depression, Mm -hmm. uh, but you had that and postpartum anxiety. And so that legitimately drove you somewhat insane. I felt like it, everything was like hyper, like everything just felt like a lot. So like my normal anxiety, I could kind of like, I had been able to handle in sobriety without you know, much, much work, you know, like prayer, meditation, that kind of stuff worked. But this was another level. This was involving another human being. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to drop the baby. Or it, it wasn't, it wasn't what you read, like when you read about it online or when you read about it in books, it didn't, it wasn't the same for me. It was like, like, it wasn't going to hurt the baby. That wasn't none of that. Uh, It was just, it was another level of anxiety I never felt before. And it was crippling. 
Yeah. And I was saying it out loud. I was, I was saying there is something going on. There is something going on. And I remember calling like postpartum uh, specialists in, in Los Angeles and then being like, okay, well, yeah, come in. But the first appointment's $500. And I was like, I can't get the help that I need. You know, you fill out the survey at six, your six week appointment with the baby at the pediatricians and you just check the boxes. Like they're not going to do anything. Like our, I'm sorry, but our, our healthcare for women post birth is like atrocious and it's really sad. And what's amazing about that was that you were in one of the wealthiest places in the, you know, in America, at least. I, I mean, if I had been in Hawaii, there's, there's no such thing as a postpartum specialist. Right. Like you, you were, <laughs> you were in the perfect, you were in West Los Angeles, yes. the perfect yes. area to get, you know, specialist help if there ever was an area to do it. And yes. Yet you found. You I know, remember at like three months, I'm calling these these you know whoever I can find online that has like these specialties, and I'm and I'm crying, and I'm telling them like I need help, and and they're like, well, yeah, but it's you know insurance doesn't cover it, right. and I was like, okay, so what am I supposed to do? Right. And, and there weren't, you know, there weren't a lot of people around who understood what you were going through. You know, you were talking about it, but but none of us, none of us knew how to support you. My husband didn't know how to support me. My mom did the best she could from, you know, 2,500 miles away. Uh, My sister hadn't experienced this. You know, I was feeling very, very, very much like, you know, the 12 year old isolated, but now I have this baby. And, and it got war and it, and what I think really made it worse was he was experiencing health issues and the pediatricians were not recognizing them as what I saw medically, what was going on, which made me feel like once again, no one's listening to me. Right. So, you know, at, you know, th- two months, three months, so three months, he uh, started experiencing um, reactions and so, so like eczema. And at one point he was having foaming green diarrhea anywhere from eight to 13 times a day. And I'm calling the pediatrician as a nurse, as a mother going, there's something wrong here. And I'm being told there's nothing wrong. So what brought on these, what brought on these things? Like, so it was, so it would usually what would happen is I, I wanted to be very cautious. So I was doing one shot at a time and these reactions were happening right after the shots. And I was going, okay, well, you know, cause and effect, like what's going on. I'm, I'm bringing my baby in and, and he's got, he's covered in eczema. He stopped breathing in the car. He screamed for, you know, four hours with 104 fever. And I'm going, well, this, it, I mean, he just had the shot. Like, so he's sick from it. Right. Like, and they were telling me it was normal and it was fine, but it wasn't fine. Like I'm already anxious. And then there's something going on with my baby and nobody's listening to me. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been So it it was nobody I mean it was like talking to a brick wall. I Why? remember at one point being like you're telling me that nothing's wrong with having green foaming diarrhea for 3 months straight. 
I mean, I just flat out asked the pediatrician, what is going on? Like, I don't know. I'm not a pediatric nurse. I've never seen this. I, I, you know, tell me what's going on. Oh, it's the organic sweet potatoes that you just introduced to his diet. No. And I knew. I mean, you know, it's especially as a nurse, right? Like you have this medical background and, you know, you are doing what you think, you know, you're following instructions from the medical community and then say like, Hey, my kid is having a reaction that is not normal. It seems really strange to me that people wouldn't say like, okay, you know, like it seems strange to me that we're so afraid to even say like, Hey, some kids have adverse reactions to this stuff. Like, you know, I I didn't, I didn't know anything other than what you know, I didn't know anything about what was happening because I didn't learn any of this in school. Like I didn't learn anything about this in, in nursing school. So I'm bringing my baby to a professional and I'm saying, okay, this happened this day, the next day he's ill. Uh, what do I do? And, you know, my gut is going, what they're telling me is just, it doesn't even make sense. Like if my baby got antibiotics yesterday and today has a full blown rash, wouldn't it be the antibiotics? Right. They're going to say, stop taking the antibiotics. They'd be like, oh, you need to stop the penicillin right now. Right. Like let's, <laughs> let's that switch. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's switch. Like, oh, he got a rash after you gave him peanuts. Oh, no more peanuts. Right. Right. That was not the case. They were like, oh, everything's fine. He's not fine. He's screaming. He's not fine. There's green stuff pouring out of his butt. And I'm like, you know, am I nuts here? Am I, am I like, I'm already feeling on edge and not supported. And then I, I need assistance and I need support and I need answers and I'm not getting them. So I'm just isolated with this child that isn't well, and I don't know how to help him. I'm doing everything I know to do to support him. I'm only breastfeeding him. I'm not, you know, he's only getting organic baby foods every four days or whatever you're supposed to do. And the eczema got worse. The eczema was head to toe. Just, he was swollen. And then, you know, initially we did a, you know, allergy testing. He wasn't allergic to anything. At six months, we did an allergy test because of the eczema and he wasn't allergic to anything. By his allergy test, uh, when at two years old, he was allergic to over 20 things. So did you continue, you continued with the shots cause they told you it was okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and not, and not work. until, and not until I, I really just, I said, well, let's stop everything. You know, I, let's stop. There's no chemicals in my house. I, oh only, yeah. I remember that you took Every chemical, I mean, I remember when you took every chemical out of the house because it was chemicals that I hadn't even considered were chemical, you know, it was like everything left your house, everything. I took anything that had more than one ingredient that was in a bottle, it got thrown away. I was like, we're starting from ground zero because I don't know what's going on and nobody's telling me what to do. People were not supportive either. Like, you were saying what was happening and people were not only not supportive, but aggressive about, you know, like you can't say that. Well, it was kind of like, well, yeah, it was just, it was not met with compassion. Let's yeah, yeah, no, no. It was like, you're overreacting. And I was like, but look at him, look at him. 
And at this point, you know, I'm, I'm in therapy. I'm doing, dealing with the anxiety. The anxiety did get better by about nine months in, and I was feeling pretty normal. And I was, you know, trying to control everything that he was ingesting, any kind of chemicals that were around because he's so sensitive. He just ended up being a very sensitive human, which they're out there. I just didn't know I was going to have one. Right. Right. So at six months you did the blood panel and he was not allergic to anything. And then, and then he, and then all of his allergies presented, did they present one by one or do you think they all came out? It was like, when you look at the large panel, he was allergic to, I mean, he was, there's like a scale. So green to red and you know, there was so many that were over the edge. It was just like, I was shocked over the, over the edge of red. No, over like you can go, it goes like yellow, I mean, green, yellow, red, and he would be like in the middle. So it would be like that can be go to red. Right. 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 So then all of a sudden I am consumed with monitoring every little thing because Mm -hmm. I have to. Right, because he's react, his, his skin is breaking out and bleeding. His skin, he would have fevers for weeks, two, oh, three weeks yeah, of yeah, fevers. Yeah. I forgot about that. Two or three week fevers where it would go anywhere from 99 to 103 and 101. And, and there would be nothing wrong. There would be no cough. There would be no sniffles. It would just be a fever. I remember that. I remember you're saying like, it's been a week and he's had 101 fever, like hundred. Yeah. And, and normally like, you know, when you're in nursing school, when you're learning about this stuff, your body, you know, heats up, heats up on its own to kill the bacteria. And then it like dwindles down and the kid bounces back or the person bounces back. And, you know, when it's a fever of unknown origin, like there's not much you can do. And you're just dealing with this roller coaster constantly. So I felt very much alone. And I, and I, what, what I, when I look back now, I was learning how to advocate not only for myself, but my, for my child, because I, I just had to look at the facts that were happening. I had to put it down on paper and look at what was happening. This step, then this step and this step, and then logically, you know, reduce my anxiety by looking at the facts and therefore taking power back into my own hands. Because, you know, I think as parents, maybe not even as like sober people, whatever, but at parents, we like take our children and we put our trust into professionals and we trust that they, they know everything, right? Like they are the solution. Like that's our kind of like our society where we just kind of listen and don't have to do anything else. Right. We just follow the directions of whoever's in charge. You go to school. So I don't have to think about it. Right. They have the answer. I'm paying them for the answer. Right. Right. And that was not my case. I couldn't do that. My son was getting sicker. My son was getting sicker listening to, you know, these professionals, which unfortunately that was the fact that was fact. When I took back control and started really diving into like anything I could get my hands on, I read every book I read every allergy book, every eczema book, every, I was up hours, hours, hours trying to find answers for my son. That's when I regained my power and the anxiety started to go away because I knew what was happening in my heart. This was true. These were the facts. This is what happened. You know, it was, it was very hard as a medical professional myself to see what was happening and go, Oh my God, it's happening to my kid. 
this is happening to my kid. This isn't supposed to happen at all. And this is happening to my kid. Right. You know, it was just really challenging to get over your own ego and own just like surrender to the fact that this was happening. I didn't want it to. And these feelings, you know, staying sober during that, I would imagine, you know, it's like obviously drinking is when you're in a situation like that, it's not attractive. However, also in a situation like that, wanting to not feel the pain that you're feeling, which is enormous, is probably really hard to to grapple with. I wanted relief for my son, number one, and I wanted relief for myself, number two. You know, you always kind of like, you know, as a parent, you're like, I'm going to lift my child up out of the burning flames and I will perish. You know, I can sacrifice myself. That's just the way it is when you're a parent. But like his relief was first and mine was like, am I ever going to get it? Is the relief ever going to come? And I would be praying. I would pray and pray and pray and pray. And, you know, my prayers were answered in different ways, of course, than I wanted them to be. I wanted my son to be hundred percent better and eat everything and go everywhere and do everything and not be immunocompromised. And, and, you know, I, I, it didn't come that way. It came in other blessings, but it didn't, it was through really hard self work that not everybody can understand. Like I couldn't just say this out loud and be, you know, say, you know, Oh, let's help you. That didn't come. So what, what did happen? So as I gained like more understanding of what was happening, that gave me some relief because I kind of found some answers. Um, I found some medical professionals that listened and helped me. That was a huge blessing because I was no longer trying to fight for just like a sentence, you know? Uh, people are, these medical professionals were actually listening to me and saying, oh yes, uh uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that happens. And I was going, wait, what? You're agreeing with me? Like I was shocked. Like after years of, of, of never being acknowledged, I felt like, oh my God, somebody's listening to me. And that was a relief because I wasn't holding it all myself. Right. If we recreate that situation of our childhood and our using of like walking into that room and someone finally hears what we have to say. Exactly. It was very much like hearing my story and being acknowledged that it was real, that I wasn't crazy, that this wasn't like, you know, just, you know, the organic sweet potatoes he ate, you know, it was real. And so I, I was like, uh, and, and, and within my relationship, it was very hard too, because, you know, he's not there and I'm the one dealing with it and I'm the nurse and, you know, it was just a trying to kind of hysterical every day. Yeah. More like more just the constant worry of what was happening. Didn't give me any time to have a relationship. Right. 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 So there's somebody who needs me. There's a relationship that needs me that I can't participate in because my son is, there's something wrong. Right. There's nothing left. Yeah, there's nothing left. And so my relationship is going, wah, wah, my screen, you know, like, help. <laughs> help me. Help me, you know. So as I, as I kind of got my footing, got some facts, got some answers, got some help, took 
health back into my own hands, I started to feel more empowered and he was getting better. So he started to get better. Yeah. How long did that take? Years. He's five. He's five. And and what is life now? And then you guys moved back to Hawaii. I was like, I'm done with California. (laughs) And I, I, and I really begged, I begged, I begged, I begged to go home because I thought my family will help. I need community, um, living in an apartment as beautiful as it is. It wasn't, it wasn't going to help. You know, the isolation did not help. So we came home. I'm in the town that we, I grew up in that we met in. And, um, it was a hard transition to go from LA back to, you know, country. Yeah. But we're here. It's been what, three years. And so your son, what is, how how is he doing and, and how has his progress related to yours? You know, I mean, you talked a little bit about that in terms of you got better as he got better. And as you took your power back, how does recovery, your recovery relate to getting him well and getting, you know, coming back? So, so I really leaned on my sponsor in these times, like, you know, it wasn't something that I would share in a meeting or anything like that, because it's just so, it's just such a touchy subject for so many people. So I would share with my, with my sponsor and she was like my rock going through this. It, it, it didn't matter if she agreed or not. It didn't matter what her personal opinion was. Um, she knew something was wrong. She knew I had to get through it. And she was like my pillar in the storm. Like I just clung to her and she walked me through the steps. You know, she was a constant support system, which I really needed because it wasn't something I could just throw out there. Yeah. And, and how is he doing today? You know, he's, he's, uh, we're homeschooling because he gets really sick, uh, in large groups of people. So he's the kind of kid that'll pick up whatever it it is. He doesn't bounce back really quickly. So we've been homeschooling and, you know, it's, it's just, he's a joy. He's a blessing and a joy. And, uh, so your experience, you, you kept putting him into school, yeah, and, because and, I was told he'll get used to all the bugs, and he never got used to all the bugs. I mean, what was, what was that like? Like when you put him in school, what happened? So within a week of starting school, he was sick, which that's a given, right? You know, a new microbiome biome to kind of you know it's a whole petri dish in there, and um, but he would get sick, have a long illness then get a better. And I put him back in because that's what you do, right? Your kids get sick, keep them home, put them back in. And he, it just was never ending. It just never stopped. I mean, last, last year he had pneumonia three times. Yeah. So he can't tolerate that. He just, his, he can't, he has what's called like chronic low uh, white blood cells. So he doesn't have the ability to fight the infection like you and I would with normal counts. Right. And then you, you've found a way to make that work and, and a specialty diet and, and you yeah. know, you've, re- you've really adjusted your lifestyle. Yeah. I went from, you know, I'm the kind of person that can kind of eat, drink anything to like, I have to be vigilant about what, what's in my house, what we use, you know, minimal everything. Yeah. 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 And 
how did you, when you got back to Hawaii and you made that transition and things started to get better, you know, you, you ended up pregnant again. Yes. I, I had this strong feeling that, um, that I should have another baby and it was kind of overpowering to the point where I had to listen, you know? Um, and I, I said, I'm never doing this again. I mean, you heard me say that like 3 million times. I said, I never do this again. I would never have another baby. I Well, just for the listeners, I, I totally forgot about this just for the listeners. Yeah. This like Bambi said, I will never have another baby, probably upwards of 50 times a day. Like you'd be having a conversation about brushing your teeth and you'd be like, Yeah, I'm using this new toothpaste and really getting into the back of my teeth. And she'd be like, Oh yeah, me too. Also, I'm never having another baby. Like it was oh. like every I think moment of every day. I'm surprised you don't have it tattooed. And then she got pregnant and <laughs> Well, so I, I, there was just this overpowering sense of this somebody that yeah. needed to come. Yeah. And I felt very much comfortable with new ideas of what that would look like for me. So I knew how I was going to handle my pregnancy. I knew how I was going to interact with medical professionals. I knew I had all gained all this knowledge through you know, facing these, these things with my son that I felt prepared for. Your family just, was nearby. I, I just had this sense of like knowledge finally that I, I had some knowledge about childbirth and babies and all kinds of things. And, um, so I, I did become pregnant. I had a, another wonderfully awful, uh, pregnancy or throwing up in kidney stones. And I ended up medically evacuated for preterm labor because we don't have a NICU on this island. So I was medevac to another island. And um, thankfully, I was able to keep her in until 39 weeks. And I had a natural drug-free vaginal delivery, which was insane. She came out and I hadn't ever felt this in my life. It was just pure joy, no fear, zero fear. Not even, I mean, I can't even tell you the difference between my son's birth and my daughter's birth. It was like two different people, me being the person, two yeah. different people and no anxiety. No, and Zero. you didn't, didn't have any like, you know, postpartum or any of that. No. And, and what's, you know, knowing you as I do the comedy in it for, for me at least was <laughs> like this baby, your daughter is the happiest baby I have ever met in my life. Like the she happiest. wakes up smiling. Yeah, she she is she is the happiest human being yes. I have ever seen. And you were born <laughs> being grimacing. Angry, like, yeah, like grimacing and like and just having a little girl who is just the happiest thing. Like I think it was like everything your soul needed to heal. Like she she just brought I knew she had to come. And when I was in labor, I felt like this just it was insane, this feeling of like this person is coming and she's like your best friend and it's somebody, you know, and I, it was just so comforting. Even when you're in the pain, I felt somehow felt comforted. So when she arrived, uh, my husband was like, I have never seen you with this big of a smile on your face. Like it was just, I was beaming me beaming. Like, (laughs) 
like Debbie Downer, like, I, I, like everything's going wrong. Like, no, she just, it, it was a complete opposite experience. And I had so much like control over, I just had this knowledge control. I don't know, just trust more like actually it was more like trust that it would, everything was meant to be this way. All the things that I had gone through with my first child were all going to mean something. And I had gone through all of that for this reason, because she was here and I knew all these things now and I felt strong and it was just, it was like redemption. It was just, it was freeing. Which is saying something because you just had a baby, the most not freeing experience, the most tied down experience. <laughs> yeah, I, and 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 I and I was able to do it without, you know, I was able to do it without, you know, it was hard. I was able to do it without the drugs, and I had support. I had a doula. I had my mom, but it was just, it was like this is all meant to be. All of the things that led up to it were meant to happen so that I could experience this. And. I think one of the main themes of your story um, that I'm hearing is listening to your gut, like listening to yes. your inner voice. And one of the things I was told when I got sober was like, your first thought is is bad, throw it away, and then go to the second one. Like just automatically yes. just trust that the first one's going to be a bad idea, which is usually true. But then over time, the longer, you know, the more recovery we have, the yeah. um, clearer that first thought is and the clearer that intuition is. And so I learned to listen to my intuition and I was taught that I could, that my intuition mattered now. It, you know, it yeah. used to not matter. And I think somewhere along the lines I was taught like that my intuition doesn't matter because it's inconvenient, you know, even as a kid, as a, you know, as a kid, all these things, like my intuition, I don't, you know, I'm not comfortable with these people. I'm not comfortable with this school, you know, something's going wrong, blah, blah, blah. Like my intuition was, I was told, particularly when you're in, you know, relationships where you're gaslighted all the time, like you are, you know, you're told like you're, you're crazy. Like you're crazy. Why would you say that? Right. So you think you start to go, am I crazy? Your intuition, you needed that to be fully, you needed that recovery and that intuition to come together to get to where you are. And it was, it was quite messy. You know, it didn't, it was quite messy, quite painful. Um, didn't come right away. But now if I, am I, if I'm quiet, if my feet are on the ground, if I look at my feet, I know the right answer. I don't need anybody. Like, it's not kind of, it's not like an ego thing. It's not like, you know, I always kind of check in with people around me that I trust, but like, I know in my gut, the right answer. We all do. You do. Yeah. 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 Sometimes it's buried real deep. Oh God. Yeah. And it doesn't mean like it's going to come the way you want it to. Right. We always have that in, in, yeah. it rarely want it to. No, it just, it's, you can't imagine what your life is going to do and the reasons why it happens the way it does. But that's the blessing, right? Like I am so grateful to be sober that I went through that pain. I was able to stay sober. Yeah. I was able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Like Granted, he's going to be 15 one day and I'm going to become crying to you because I know that's going to be a whole other set of challenges. <laughs> but like, here it is. Here is the joy of sobriety and it is the pain, right? Right. right. It's the pain. 
Right. It's, it's all the things. It's the, you're right. You're right. You're exactly right. Which is that you look back and you realize that there was, that the joy is in the pain because the, yes. the pain, the pain is the, you know, as they say, the touchstone of spiritual yes. growth. I mean, it is, I do not make grand changes without <laughs> being in pain enough to make them like, I just, I wasn't wired that way. If it's going well, I'm not going to, you know, if if it ain't broke, I'm not going to try to fix it. And, uh, or if I'm enjoying the rewards, I'm not going to, you know, up my ante. Typically I'm going to go with what I think works. And that pain is the thing that shifts me. And I look back and I see the joy in that pain, but in the, uh, during the time, my prayers, you know, my, (laughs) my mantras are like, make it stop. Someone make it stop. Yeah. And, and, and at times it was like, I was so mad. I was like, so mad at the universe for, for what this was the time I was just like, why is this happening? Why? You know, I was mad, really, really mad. And, and, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to have more experiences like that because I will, I know that more challenges will come. They will be different. I will have different challenges, but sober, you can pretty much do anything, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's no, none of the situations that you described would have been improved by having a drink. Oh, I would have lost, I would have lost everything, but even so, like, let's say even so, like it still wouldn't have, like, even if it was, you still wouldn't have gotten like the intense long lasting relief that you were truly looking for. No, it would have been, I got to sleep and that was, and then you'd wake up in hell again. Yeah. Right. And that's, because it that's why doesn't go away. Do it, right. That's why people do it. Yes. And I did it. I, you know, I wanted that relief. I wanted the hell to stop. Yeah. I want the hell to stop. And it does, it does stop for a little bit. And then you wake up back in it, you wake up back in it. Yeah. And this way, this is like, you know, it's literally putting one foot in front of the other until you're somewhere new. Yeah. And it doesn't even mean you're in a new place. It just means you've learned something, you've grown, you've accepted something, you've let, you know, it doesn't matter. It's all everybody's own process, but it's literally putting one tiny inch in front of the other. Yeah. It's incredible, um, you know, what you've, what you've gone through and what you've been able to do. And, and, you know, for, for context, like, you know, you were so isolated in Los Angeles, like just really incredibly isolated, really stuck in your home. Um, and your, your apartment was this beautiful, modern cement apartment and as beautiful and modern as this cement apartment was, it was, I always had this feeling when I went in there and you were, you were like truly isolated to this home, like barely could get to the grocery store kind of deal. And I remember walking in and like, it's like, it could double as like a really beautiful modern apartment or prison. And well, it felt at times like that, you know, I was so grateful to have a beautiful place to live. It wasn't like, I wasn't grateful for this. Oh, yeah thing, but it was like, this isn't, this isn't working as beautiful, as beautiful as this looks. And it was beautiful. It just, it couldn't have, it wasn't going to solve the problem. Right. You know, like the things, as we know, Mm -hmm. the things don't solve the problem. The things. Yeah. And, and the more we 
try to make them solve the problem, the deeper we get. Yeah. The worse you feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have an incredible story and, and Bambi, I adore you. Um, Love you too. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I think so many women, I think sobriety after having children, pregnancy and postpartum in sobriety is a very important topic to talk about, which I plan to talk about more on the podcast because, you know, there's mommy wine culture. (laughs) Oh yeah. And I have, I have a friend that, yeah, that's (laughs) it. Well, I know lots of people and it looks amazing. Oh my God. They like, Oh, can you imagine being able to drink when your kids go to sleep? I, I absolutely <laughs> a thousand percent can and have imagined. Yes. Now it doesn't, the next day, it doesn't turn out the same as their day. However, I, I mean, there is something so amazing. Like they, because I have to do like, it takes me hours to get to a place of serenity after my kids go to sleep. Right. Like yes. I have to, I have to do a whole long list of like, de you know calming my nervous system down if it ever works and then right. by the time I do that I have to go to bed so it's pr- pretty much I just live in that constant heightened state but the thought of just being able to take a drink and you immediately experience that like you're um, like oh my god I, I yeah, just I would, oh. like a bong rip at bedtime are you kidding I mean, just like these things, but obviously we know what that looks like, but yeah. you, when you're sober and the, let me speak for myself, when I had the twins and yeah. then I was like, okay, now I'm a sober mom. I was like, I am missing a key parenting tool. Like, yeah. like alcohol is a parenting tool in your toolbox alongside calling people and having a minivan and whatever. There's alcohol, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was now in a situation, particularly with, you know, high, high intensity that I was like, I don't have that tool. What the, what am I supposed to do? These people get a, a mental break and I don't mm-hmm. like, how do I survive? Yeah. It's, it, it feels like you're, you're in the wilderness and you need a machete and all you have is like a, you know, your nail. <laughs> you have a fork. Yeah. You're like, there's tigers out here and I need protection. I don't have the machete. That's what it feels like. Right. Right. And so I think there's a lot. And then, and then, you know, if you have postpartum depression, sleep depression, like just add in, I mean, add in those things and on top of alcoholism and, you know, it's a, it's a real party. It's a real, it's a real thing. And, and those of us who are married to people in recovery, nothing happens to that. Like your recovery sometimes suddenly becomes, you know, high alert and they're just like, do, 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 do. What's wrong with you? What's happening? You know, they don't grow placentas and they don't have like the, you know, they don't, they don't, um, they don't experience the, uh, hormones. Oh my God. So, you know, it's like two different people, like me, pre-pregnancy and now I am a different person. I am not the same person I was and, you know, for good and for bad, but I, I, he's, he's been with me through it all. Has it been easy? 
Absolutely not. There were very, very rough times where I didn't know if we were going to be like, okay, yeah, maybe we should just call it a day because this is too much because his life didn't change the way mine did. Right. And that's so, I mean, and like, think about it. We drank over these intense emotions that we had no idea how to handle. Right. So then some sobriety under about, we're like, yeah, we know how to handle these intense feelings. And then you have a baby and you're like, I do not know how to handle these. intense. You're like, I am in Antarctica and it's cold here and you're not warming me up. And uh, pretty sure we have a serious problem and I don't, you know, I don't have the tools. So being able, and then you also don't have the time, which you realize how much time you had. I, you don't have the time to put into your recovery to get to no. that. Like, so you're like, wow, this normally you would, you know, put everything you have. If you're in pain, yes. you would just throw yourself into the middle of all things recovery. And yes. you're a mom, you don't have time for that. So now not only. And after the baby comes, nobody cares. Right. Like, have you noticed that? Like after you have the baby, people are like, oh, we'll handle it. Like get it together. It's actually, I w- that is true. If you have one, if you have two, <laughs> well, you were thrown into the wolves. Yeah. <laughs> if, you have, if you have two babies, people care for a lot longer, but yes, no, 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 that's- if people are like, cause I just say like, I have two, three month olds and everyone's like, oh, oh God. Oh. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh shit. You better go over there. Oh man. Yeah. Oh man. Drop, I re- drop what you're doing and help, help, help. <laughs> I, remember, I remember telling you I was having twins and you're like, oh my. Well, I think you told me when I was in the thick of hell I, I, and I was like, this bitch is going down to flames, you know, like <laughs> I was like, this can't be good. Nobody should have children. Like, you know, like everything is wrong. Uh, you know, like get the fire extinguisher. It's hot in here. Oh, like, yeah. I'm amazed you didn't hose me down with that thing. I think I tried. I know. I was like, yeah, that's you did. You did try. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very hard to, uh, to change direction. Um, I, I do it. Hey, I do it, but I, yeah. I, it takes a bit, but yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think how we handle, um, pregnancy and, raising children in this country. I don't, I can't speak to other countries, but in this country, I think that the mental health aspect of women is not considered enough. And, and that if you you are at risk being sober or in recovery or or at risk, whatever, that that has, that we need support and tools to handle the new life and to be able to get through that. And I truly hope that I, I, you know, more, I know lots of women who would say the same thing and that our recovery changed that, uh, you know, for me, trauma came up that I had thought I had dealt with, uh, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. Like I really thought I was like, no, I really did deal with that. And then boom, it's back. And yeah, (laughs) yeah, turns out. So you know, what, you know, my story doesn't look like, you know, you know, you're in a meeting and you hear a story and you think, well, you look for the similarities and it's like, yeah, my story isn't, it isn't like, it's not something that you may even connect with, but like when you're a mom and something's wrong with your child sober or not, like you're desperate, Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the where that's what I wanted kind of people to hear that I, I was desperate and in need of of 
like I needed the help and it it wasn't coming, you know? And so digging deep into, you know, the work of, of self care. Yeah. In sobriety, when everything's falling apart was, you know, was like learning how to live all over again. Mm-hmm. It was just it like getting sober. It was just like getting sober. It was like, okay, I'm not going to drink today. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to drink right now. I'm not going to go to 7-Eleven. I'm not going to go to 7-Eleven. I'm not going to go to 7-Eleven. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to call my sponsor. I'm going to call someone safe. I'm going to, I'm going to do the next indicate step. I'm going to listen to the people that I trust. I'm going to listen to my gut. I'm going to pray like all those things that I did in the first year of sobriety, second year of sobriety. This was on a whole nother level, but it was the same, right? Yep. yep. And yeah. I think, I think that that I, I felt the same way. Like, I think that 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 we should be telling, you know, women of of childbearing, you know, age, like we should be telling them this. We should be telling you, you are going to get sober once your children are born. You're going to get sober again. Like it is going to be whatever it is. It's going to be, it's going to, you are going to get sober again and you need to prepare for it. Yeah. You need to buckle up because it's bumpy out there. You know, (laughs) I I remember telling somebody like really honestly what childbirth even felt like. And I was like, I felt like my asshole was going to rip off and hit the wall. Okay. And she looked at me like I was insane. And I was like, no, that's real. That's the truth. No one's going to tell you that. (laughs) Okay. That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. <laughs> and it wasn't, it's just like, you're not supposed to talk about these things. Like, right. you know, my mom was really open with me about how she felt after giving birth, what labor was like. My sister was pretty open with me. You know, like I had seen birth. I had been like, you know, it, I wasn't like, I thought I was prepared. I was not prepared for any of it. It was like hitting a brick wall going a hundred and then no ambulance is coming. That's, That's what it, it felt like. Yeah. It was like, you get out of the car, you're maimed, you're mangled and you have to figure out how to like save someone you're, else. Hey, hey sister, you're walking home with that baby on your back. Like that's what you're doing. You got two broken legs. You're going home. And, and I'm not saying I didn't have a supportive partner. I did, but it's just on a different, you can't explain it as a mother. You just can't right. explain like you, your connection. You, you land on a different planet. So it's yeah. really, it's really, yeah. Yeah. I, I really hope that we can, you know, spread more awareness and, and teach people how to prepare for what their sobriety is going to look like after yes. child after giving birth and in motherhood, yes. because it's going to be different and you may have to like, emotionally get sober again. Yeah. And nobody can tell you until you're in it, just like everything else, you know, you you don't wake up on planet earth. You kind of wake up on planet birth. You're like a, you just, just, it's, it's nuts. And it's not like that for everybody. I know sober people that have kids and it's like, poof, no problem. Baby at the meeting. And I'm like, you brought the baby to the meeting. Do you know how many germs are in here? You know, like that's where my <laughs> brain goes. Like people are in here coughing and smoking and like, mm. Yeah. So it's different for everybody, but I think for us women in sobriety, I think the, you know, the tendency to go a little, you know, is uh, higher than your average population and it's okay. Totally. And it's, and it's okay. And you just like, I just 
it feels good to just even say it out loud because it's freeing. It's like, you know, it's just nice to get it out. Not everyone's going to agree with it and that's okay. It's just, that's what happens to some of us. Yeah. And, um, you know, the beautiful thing is that we do have some skills from, from before and that we use them and that we stayed sober and that our kids have sober parents, which is a really, really important thing, right? Like, yeah. And if anyone hears this and, 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 you know, they relate, like they're not alone, just like, oh yeah. In the other story. Yeah. You're not alone. Yeah. Not alone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bambi, thank you so much for being here. I adore you. And it was super fun to hear your story at length. And I know that it's going to help people. I know that this topic needs to be covered. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it so much. I'm going to go to the beach. Oh, (laughs) hit that beach. I need pictures. All right. I'll send you some. Okay. Okay, Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.